I was good. <laughs> if I drink, it prevents the tears, so let me just talk with a cup in my mouth. I hope that's okay. Um, I've been talking with Pastor Sergey today after they did a two-hour service in Trivnitsi. They went on and had a three-hour prayer meeting, and now he's on his way down to a certain region in southwestern um, uh, towards the Romanian border to help out at one of the camps that we served at where they are hosting refugees, and of course they need heaters, blankets, tents, everything else. Unbelievable. Um, just the attitude and the dedication of the people that are there to, to serve in the middle of a war zone. It's also interesting to, uh, we put up the link to give, and uh, this morning, $11,000 came in. After Jordan's appeal, it's up to thirteen. Last night, I had a church phone me say, we want to give $30,000. We still have four other churches that have committed. Another uh, little church just said, we want to do something. And I spent about a half hour, 45 minutes talking with the pastor. We want to do something. And I just said, anything you do will help. So I've been talking with Romania. I've been talking with Poland. Talking with uh, other agencies uh, that I can't name to see how we can get this money. Thank you. So good morning, because it is. It's a good morning on so many levels. In spite of the chaos the world is found in, it's a good morning, and I celebrate. Somebody says, how you doing? I go, I have com compassion fatigue, but that's okay. I cry all the time, no big deal, because the work isn't finished. And so here we are. We're beginning a new series entitled Ask Anything. This is interesting because uh, I want to th uh, thank basically all of you who have responded to our social media requests with questions. And so over the next few weeks, what we're going to do, the next seven weeks, we're going to do our best to answer some of the questions that came in um, that have been submitted. And we're going to approach this series, this, these next few Sundays are going to be approached in a very different way that I normally teach. Because normally I pick a book of the Bible and we walk through it and I can teach verse by verse. That's easy for me. I enjoy that. That's thrilling for me. Today, this is not the normal approach and nor will it be for the next seven weeks. But I think it just has to be the way that we're going to do this to be able to kind of land where we need in answering these questions. And so in the next couple of weeks, we'll be asking the questions of, um, I would like to believe in God, but what about science? And do all paths lead to the same God, and we have other questions, but today I want to ask the question, or answer the question, how can we trust the Bible, especially in the crazy times we live in? Now, I get up here almost every Sunday, and I share with you what the Bible says regarding a lot of topics, and a lot of people go through life, actually, when it's all said and done, still feel confused about the Bible. Many of us have never had anybody literally show us how it all fits together and how things link from the Old Testament to the New Testament and back again. And you read things in the scriptures that sounds absolutely crazy and things that don't make any sense until you have somebody somehow show you and try to explain it in context, which really is part of what my calling is. And when that happens, those things begin to click together, right? And they fall into place and the light goes on and it makes sense. 
But the fact is that many people, even Christians, have a lot of unanswered questions about the Bible and if we can trust it. And we live in a world that is constantly saying, you know, and I just saw this one presentation on TikTok. Yes, your pastor does TikTok. Just want you to know. And basically, it says, you know, the Bible's been changed over time. It's been translated so many times. Can we really know what it says? There are so many different interpretations of it. Who really knows? Wasn't it written by men? Are, you know, are we sure that these are the words of God? I'm sure there are some great stories in there, but can we really trust it? And, and what is the influencer of our society today? It is social media. And we also know, by watching the news, is we also know how the media is twisted. And I'm not here to say anything regarding that. I'm just making a point of fact. Now, Maybe the Bible is a mystery for you today. Maybe watching online and you're just checking in. Maybe there are just parts of the Bible that you're frightened by. Maybe it's the book of Revelation, how it fits into today. Maybe there are other parts that you're bothered by. Well, you know what? That's okay. That's okay. It's okay to bring that honestly and say, I don't know what to do with this passage or this session or this part of the Bible just kind of really makes me mad. And, you know, let's be honest, people. It's okay. Let's just be honest about that. I just want us to bring ourselves before this book. And I was going to bring my Bible down, and I forgot. Go figure. I'm talking about the Bible, and I leave it up in my office. But I want us to approach the Scriptures that says, God, I'm opening this up, and I'm opening up my life to your word. I'm asking you to do what you said and what you would do through this book in my life. Now, can we trust the Bible? You know, pastors aren't supposed to ask that question in church, right? Because if we can't trust the Bible, in other words, if it's not true, if it's not really the source of guidance inside of our life, and we can't trust the words that it says, then honestly, people, there's a whole lot at stake. And not just eternity. In other words, if the Bible is not true, if it's not trustworthy, if it's not reliable, and there is no eternal life at stake, then this life is at stake. See, there's meaning. There's purpose. There's a relationship with God. There's direction in life. And the point of you knowing or experiencing or having an understanding of what life is about really is found within the Scriptures. And if we can't trust that, then all of it is gone. If we can't trust the Bible, then frankly, what we're doing here right now is an absolute, complete waste of time. Hmm. There's a lot at stake. In other words, there's a lot of other things that we can do if the Bible is not true. We should probably shut this thing down and get on with life as it is, if the Bible's not true. However, if it is true, hmm, we can't go far enough to live by it, and we can't do enough to allow it to guide our life. See, if the Bible is true, it says it's a source of guidance from God himself who wants to lead you and me to the fullest life possible. And he's a God, if it's true, he's a God then who wants you and I to experience the greatest life possible. 
And so today I am out of my comfort zone and my teaching style, but I hope today is interesting. I actually hope today is going to be helpful. And that I also hope that once we're done that your heart will be moved. This is my prayer, that your heart will be moved to believe that God is really faithful and that he is really who he says he is and that you can trust the scriptures. You can trust his word. And so when you get a Bible, again, so this is my prop because this is my other Bible that I'm more used to. When you get a Bible and you put it in the hand, you open it up to the very beginning, because that's what we do when we get books in our hands, right? We open it up to the very beginning, and we read in Genesis 1. What do we read? In the beginning, God created. So now we have a bit of a problem, if I can actually say that, a problem for a lot of people right there, because anybody who doesn't believe that God created the world and that he is the author of the book, you know, um, uh, we have an issue, right? So I would actually say then I have to graciously say that they're simply not opening their eyes to the evidence that's actually around them because it's everywhere. And there is enough evidence really to satisfy the harshest critic. So what does the Bible say about itself? The Bible professes to be the word of God. It does. The scriptures. And here's what the Bible says in 2 Peter. Now, we, we just finished 1 Peter, but he keeps writing, and he's, he loves to write these letters. But this is what Peter writes. Again, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origins in the human will, but prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is saying the way that the Bible was recorded was that God directed men to write down certain things and certain things needed to be included in these scriptures. And that's what the Bible says about itself. And it goes on to 2 Timothy where we read, All scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, excuse me, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for what? Every good work. Now, what does that prove? Now, it doesn't prove anything. And so maybe you're thinking, oh, wow, man, the, so the Bible cl- you know, claims to be the word of God. What is it, what is it, so what? What does it prove? Well, you're right, nothing. But it does establish into our conversation this morning that the Bible claims to be the word of God. In other words, if people say, well, I don't think it's a big deal, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. In fact, Peter, writing in 2 Peter chapter 3, he further establishes the New Testament writings, right? The writings of Paul specifically, he addresses. He addresses these letters to Paul. And he says, basically, that they're considered scripture. And here's what he says in 2 Peter 3. It says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. I love that part. As they do the other scriptures, why? To their own destruction. And I love what he says. He really says what a lot of us, if if you ever read Paul's letter, you've experienced from time to time. You know, I don't know about you, but I've read Paul and I'm going, what is he trying to say? Like, and even Peter is like, look, I, I, I hear you've been reading Paul. I get it. It's a little confusing. Doesn't he realize that I was a fisherman? Like, he understands what's going on. At the same time, it's, it may be a little complex, but they are the words of God here. Peter believed that Paul, in his letters, was writing Scripture. So what does that prove? 
It proves that the Bible professes to be the word of God. Is that conclusive enough evidence? No. But it's a starting point as we investigate the truth and why Christians must trust the Bible. So here's something else worth considering. And if you're taking notes, start with this one. Consider the resilience of the Bible. Consider the resilience of the Bible. The Bible survived against extraordinary odds. We can look back in history. You'll see that no other book has gone, undergone such intense, relentless opposition and scrutiny than the Scripture has. It's endured constant attacks, constant criticism, constant slander down throughout the ages, and yet it still continues to stand firm. It has emerged from all that criticism unscathed, unashamed, unshaken. Even after centuries of attack, there is no book in history that has ever stood the kind of test and has endured more persecution. You look back through history, we see that kings and entire governments and tyrants have done everything within their human power to wipe the Bible off the face of the earth. They've burned it, they've buried it, they've torn it to pieces, they've done everything that they have could to get rid of the scriptures, and yet the Bible always rises up from the ashes. It's stronger than before. It continues to be the best-selling book of all time, including last year. How is that even possible? That so many hundreds and hundreds of years, people have tried to discredit this book. They've tried to destroy the book, and it just keeps rising up. The French writer Voltaire, he said that in a hundred years from his lifetime, Christianity and the Bible will be swept from existence. And he died in 1778, 50 years after his death. The Geneva Bible Society used his house to print Bibles. That is so awesome. And if anybody had had a right to roll over in his grave, it would have been Voltaire. 1 Peter 1.24, we went through this already. All men are like grass. All their glory is like flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall. But what? What is Peter writing? The word of the Lord stands forever and ever. Somebody else said this. They said, the empire of Caesar is gone. The legion of Rome are smoldering in the dust. The avalanches that Napoleon hurled upon Europe have melted away. The prince of the pharaohs is falling. The pyramids they raised are eroding every day in the desert stands. But the word of God still survives. In Matthew 24, we read that Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. I can't give you very many rock-solid guarantees in life. Like, goodness knows, I can't even guarantee what the weather is going to be like in this next week. I can't guarantee what the stock market's going to do this month, but I can guarantee without hesitation that the Bible will stand long after both you and I are off this earth. And it's never been blotted out by, uh, despite the opposition, despite the attacks, despite the criticism. Secondly, we can talk about the extraordinary supernatural unity of the Bible. Despite the diversity from which it came over a period of roughly 1,500 years, you've never, maybe you've never heard that, but it's pretty mind-boggling to think about how our scriptures came together. It forms one complete story and how it's put together. The odds of that are astronomical. The production of scripture is unbelievable if you spend time and study regardless of anything else, really what 
regardless of what you believe, the 66 books that make up the Bible were written over 2,000 years ago by 40 different authors, three different languages on multiple continents. And the craziness about it all is that it professes the same storyline. It tells the storyline of the God who has made provision for humanity and his plan for redemption in our world, of sending his own son to be our savior, the savior of the world. The Old Testament points to it. It points to Jesus. The New Testament, all of it, it talks about Jesus. That's the scriptures. Even the production is a remarkable thing that would that would have the same message over thousands of years by different men who never met each other who wrote in different countries, spoke the, yet the same storyline. They spoke from palaces, prisons, wilderness, places of exile. They spoke of history. They wrote of historical books, law books, poetry, prophecy, Proverbs, the New Testament letters, the gospel accounts, all with this underlying cohesive message together of God's plan to redeem the world by sending his son, Jesus. The Bible's not a single book. In other words, I don't know, maybe you've heard it. I know, man, it's just a single book. It's one guy on weed and he decided to write. It's not Harry Potter. It's a collection of 66 books that God throughout history preserved and provided for his church to know. In fact, the word Bible means the books. Even in the production, we see it smacks of divine order that you would have to spread out over centuries that same message from different men, different languages, different continents. Even some of the authors in the New Testament are, I think, some of the most strongest evidences for why we can actually trust what the New Testament says. In other words, the storyline of the guys who are writing the Bible, and I don't know if you know this, but the guys who wrote particularly the New Testament, almost really all of it, weren't straight out of Bible college. These dudes were all guys who had a past. I mean, when you look at them, each one of them provides some evidence why this could be trustworthy. You look at Matthew. Matthew wrote the gospel of? Mm, okay, good. There's, there's a sharp audience this morning. Awesome. Matthew was a first century mafia member. Oh, what are you talking about, Jerry? That's what he did. He was a tax collector. He ripped his own people off. He had nothing to do with God. He didn't want to have anything to do with God. He, then he meets Jesus. And his life becomes transformed. He sees his resurrected Savior. And he gives his life for that Savior. He gives his life for that message. A guy who didn't grow up in church, who didn't want to have anything to do with God, who wanted to rob people blind, the mafia, and that's what this tax collector would have been in that day. But he encounters Jesus, and everything changes. Who else has a story that, you know, we could talk about? We could look at James and Jude. Two little books in the New Testament. James and Jude were the baby brothers of Jesus. That puts Catholics in a tailspin. I know, I'm sorry. But it is. They didn't believe that their brother was anything special. We're told in the Gospels that the family of Jesus was like, hey, dude, like, uh, what are you doing, Jesus? You're embarrassing the clan here. You know, you're claiming to be God. This is not cool for any of us. Mom, mom, can you get him back here? Mom, get him out of the people. Let's bring him home and tie him up. 
He was an embarrassment to his family. They didn't believe. What would it take for you to believe that your sibling was the son of God? (laughs) Think about it. Until James and Jude saw their big brother die and come back alive, everything changed. They said, my big brother is my Messiah, my Savior. And these weren't men that always believed. They didn't ever believe until the resurrection, and it was at the resurrection for them that everything changed. Think about Paul. Even the New Testament author, Paul, smacks of God's divine intervention in somebody's life, testifying to the truth of who Jesus is, of who he said he was, and you know, of what Scripture promised, especially of the resurrection. Paul, formerly known as Saul, didn't like Christians at all, right? He spent half his life trying to stomp out Christianity. He was like the super religious guy. He's an anti-Christian guy. That's who he was. He spent that first life trying to, first half of his life trying to stamp it out. Then one day he meets Jesus and everything has changed, including his name. And what does God do? God uses him to be one of his greatest missionaries, and God uses him to write a major part of the New Testament. Author after author. These men weren't just like, hey, I've always been a part of this and I really believe in the cause. Woohoo! They were men who didn't believe and their life after encountering God was transformed and the production of the Bible itself smacks of the divine intervention of God. Never thought I could be so passionate about preaching on the word. There's preservation. And this is remarkable. See, after the resurrection of Jesus, what happens? Christianity explodes around the globe, right? It goes from this Jewish carpenter who all of a sudden rises from the dead. Things begin to take off and it explodes everywhere and people are coming to faith left, right, center. And it begins to spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. And so what happens? People begin to journal what they encountered. Eyewitnesses, the accounts, they begin to write them down. We call them the Gospels. Then we have the epistles or the letters that Paul and a few others had, and they begin to surface, and people go, I want a copy of those. I want a copy. And so copies are made of the letters of Paul. Copies are made of the gospel accounts. They're spread all over the place. Copy after copy is made because people are like, well, if I can have one of those letters, I'll read it every day in church. Please, can you just give us one? And so these letters all of a sudden are spread all over the ancient world. We call them manuscripts now. That's just a big word for copies, for photocopier. And what does that have to do with anything why we can trust the Bible? Because the manuscripts that we have, if we can't trust the um, preservation of those manuscripts because of the extraordinary amount of them, and the extraordinary quality of them. If we can't trust them, then technically we should not be able to trust any other book from the ancient world. We not only know what the original said, we have thousands and thousands of copies that confirm the message of the Bible that it has not been changed. Copies that go back, not to the Da Vinci Code, okay, just throwing it out there, they go back to AD 90. We have copies unlike any other ancient book of the world. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's, do a com- uh, let's compare some copies from the ancient world. When you look at other, at other books by comparison, 
We can talk about some of those. How many of you are familiar with this guy named Caesar? Right? Not the dressing. Okay? He's a guy. A guy. A lot of guys named Caesar. But he's, Caesar's a guy, so to speak, if I can say it that way. Essentially the emperor, emperor of the day. And if you ever studied anything about Roman history and you studied the Caesars, the earliest manuscript we have is about 100 years after his life. And there are less than 20 of them. Everything that we've ever known about Caesar, everything that you've ever studied, everything that you ever watched in movies comes from those manuscripts. You ever heard of Plato? Not Plato, Plato. Okay. What kind of copies or manuscripts do we have from him? We have seven ancient manuscripts, which is pre-printing press. Seven from the ancient world. How about somebody that we have referred to from the stage, a guy by the name of uh, Tacitus. Roman historian, history major. If you study history, Roman history, you, in, in university, you, you would study this guy because he was a primary source for all Roman history that we have. How many copies of his writings do we have? Only about half of his original 30 books survived. And their survival was dependent on simply two manuscripts. How many do we have the New Testament? 25,000. Let's look at second place. The second most widely documented book from the ancient world is Homer's Iliad. It roughly has 2,000 copies. New Testament still has 23,000 more copies before we even get closer to the second book of all manuscripts. This is all before the printing press. And partly because of the explosion of Christianity. People saw this thing, this thing, these letters as living and active as the word of God. And they said, we need to hold on to this. We need to remember it. We need to preserve it. We need to do everything that we can to protect it and get the word out. And the New Testament manuscripts um, aren't copies that were dated years later they're copies that were dated all the way back to A.D. 90. One has been arguably uh, um, discussed at coming probably A.D. 60, right around the time when the Gospels and all these things are being written. Now, oh, Jerry, there's changes inside the copies. And I know if you turn on your TV or you watch other stuff, it's like, well, the Bible's been translated so many times, how can we really know? And you've probably heard that there are a number of different changes inside different manuscripts. And the bad news is this. Yes, there are changes. There are differences. As a matter of fact, I'll go so far as to say that there are thousands of differences. But do you know what the differences are like? That becomes the question. Let me walk with you what some of the differences are. This one comes from the leading New Testament scholar in the world. His name is Dan Wallace. He basically says that 99.5, you hear that percentage, 99.5% of the changes. In other words, the differences between manuscripts fall into three categories. The first, there are spelling mistakes, spelling differences, let's put them that way. John being spelled with two N's instead of one. Oh, it's a mistake though, it counts. I've heard that. So the biggest differences really comes down to spelling. Spelling differences make up about... 70%. Secondly, the changes that are not even translatable into English. Um, They deal with the particle the, T-H-E-E, the. In other words, it would say, hey, you know, this one says, 
you know, the John loves Jesus, but this one says John loves Jesus. They've added a word. Some folks say that's a mistake. Really? Maybe you could just leave it or you can begin to do the research and think for yourself. And please, don't use YouTube. Right? Like, don't stop trusting YouTube comments that are, the Bible is wrong, user 001666, whatever. Trust proven scholars. You want to know who they are? Ask us. Ask those around you that have studied Scripture, that are involved in studying Scripture. Well, what about the 5.5%, Jerry? It may not sound like much, but it could be something significant, right? Stay with me because it's about to even get more boring. In Greek class, we had to study the 0.5% when I studied. And you probably go, oh, that's probably really cool. I'd like to see what the big differences are in the New Testament, you know, the things that have been changed. Um, let me give you a couple of them, and it's about as exciting as it's going to get for you today, okay? One of them comes from the manuscript that covers 1 Thessalonians 2.7. Most of the manuscripts in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. We found older manuscripts now that say this, but we were like infants among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. So in the Greek, the words between the gentle and infants is actually the difference is one letter. Think about this. Here it is on the screen. Nepeus or epos. So which one is it? I guess we can't trust the Bible then, eh? I mean, that, that's truly it. Let me give you another one. It comes from Mark 9, 29. It's Jesus. He's replying to his disciples who, you know, if you remember the story, they're going, hey, Jesus, how come we can't cast out these demons? And his response is, well, this can only come out by prayer. And then there's this manuscript that shows up that says that this can only come out by prayer and fasting. Right, some of you know that. So which one is it? Probably not a bad idea to fast before you try casting out demons. Just throwing it out there. I don't know. At the end of the day, it actually doesn't change anything significant about the Scriptures. It, even, even right there, if you look in your Bible, many of you, depending on the translation you have, it will be footnoted, and some will say prayer and fasting at the bottom. So if you're sitting there and you're experiencing what I experienced sitting in class and seminary going like, all right, dude, this is like, you know, what about the one about Jesus getting married? Yeah, yeah, we've heard that all from the Da Vinci Code, right? It doesn't exist. All the differences are trivial as that. Like I'm just saying, the idea that the Bible's been changed is can candidly, candidly intellectually lazy. And you cannot believe it for a lot of reasons. Believing that someone can rise from the dead, that's, that's a good enough reason. Okay, I'll, I'll, that's a good enough reason if you can't get there. But to say that it's been changed, to me, is a smokescreen. And candidly, you've either brought in, bought into the propaganda or you're, you're literally being intellectually lazy. That's called an admonition from Scripture. We also have historical evidence. And here's where you go on for weeks and weeks and books and books. And the Bible makes hundreds of references to people, places, dates, ev uh, events, Specific places, specific times, it's sort of putting itself out there to be tested, to be proven. And if it just talked 
in short vagueness, that would be one thing. But no, the Bible is very specific, especially the book of Luke, very specific details. And so there's plenty of opportunities for contradiction with the historical record, and people have tried to discredit the Bible with archaeology, and the more they try, the more they fail. And the Bible continues to prove itself to be true. There are so many missing cities that the Bible talked about forever ago, and that people said, hey, well, they no longer exist. They're just myths. One of those cities were Sodom and Gomorrah. And for a long, long time, experts said that these cities, these events that were described in the Old Testament were just myths until some excavations confirmed the existence of Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, it goes further than that. As they began to dig and uncover, they discovered something remarkable. And the Bible says that God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. How? Do you remember? By raining fire down upon them, completely destroying them. And skeptics go, yeah, right, that would never have happened. But at the location to be uh, ancient Sodom, which is thought by some archaeologists, not all of them agree, it's called Tel El Hammam. Archaeologists found widespread scorched foundations of the floors being burned on three feet of dark gray ash, as well as dozens of pottery shards covered with a frothy, melted surface. The glassy appearance indicates that they were briefly exposed to temperatures in excess of 2,000 degrees, which is the approximate heat of volcanic magma. And so this evidence suggests the city, the surrounding area, was catastrophically destroyed in a sudden and extreme fire. Now again, there's some debate if this is truly Sodom and Gomorrah, but there are many of those who do believe that this site is that site. There's a city in Nineveh, no debate on this one. Critics for years said it didn't exist until one day archaeologists just happened to find the city of Nineveh with these massive gates and statues of the winged gods outside that we know about. These winged gods now sit in the British Museum, if you care to go and see it proves that this city of Nineveh was around. The city of Jericho was the same thing. The Bible records the destruction of Jericho. The walls completely fell down because why? God caused them to fall. They weren't torn down brick by brick, stone by stone. They fell down. But the city of Jericho has been found. And as they were unearthing the walls, what did they find? Just as the battle said that there was one wall, the northern wall, that is still standing, and there was houses built along that wall. The Bible says that Rahab, the prostitute, was spared from destruction. Remember, she was there. Her house was on the wall. I was there. I saw that with my own eyes. Not the falling of, like, Jericho. No, no, no. <laughs> The unearthing. I saw the window that they say is Rahab's, which I don't believe, but it, it's, who knows, maybe she did graffiti. I have no clue. But I saw it with my own eyes. People used to actually doubt that King David never existed, that it was just invented in the Bible. They've, and then they have found an inscription and mentioned the house of David. And that actually became a bit of an oops in modern scholarship. People walking around thinking that Jesus is just a myth, just like Santa Claus or something out of Middle Earth. But we know beyond doubt that Jesus was a real person, reported not only in the Christian documents, but also in non-Christian documents. Discoveries in the Bible that people never thought existed include the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5, the pool of Siloam in John chapter 9, Jacob's well in John chapter 4, the tunnel underneath Jerusalem that King Hezekiah dug to let water come in during the siege, the theater in Ephesus where the riot occurred with Paul in Acts 19. We were there. One archaeologist, his name is Nelson Glick, who had made more than a 
1,500 archaeological discoveries said it can be categorically stated that no archaeological discovery has ever been made that contradicts the historical content of the Bible. One of the greatest archaeologists is named Sir uh, William Mitchell Ramsey. He devoted his life for years trying to disprove the Bible through archaeology and historical records especially. He had a great disdain for the book of Acts, specifically Luke, the author, from almost the start to finish because of the detail after detail, historical details. He was determined to disprove it, and Ramsey shocked the academic world when his work was finally published, and he says this, further studies showed that the book could bear the most minute uh, scrutiny as an authority for the facts of the Aegean world and that it was written with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be a model of a historical statement. And then he gave his life to Christ. What else could you do in the face of such evidence? The Bible has been proven historically reliable time and time again, and this is something else that is absolutely remarkable about the Scriptures. Unlike any other religious book that's out there, the Bible makes these predictions and pulls them off over and over again. In other words, they're saying these things called prophecies. Inside the Old Testament, where there are these prophecies that are given, there are hundreds of years before the event would have ever taken place. Some of the most common ones probably heard are around the life of Jesus. Where hundreds of years before Jesus was around, there were 360 prophecies, and that he, one after another, basically fulfilled. Some of them deal with the things that you have absolutely no control over, like where you're being born. Him being prophesied, being born in Bethlehem. No one controls where you're born. And yet it took place. The other ones even more remarkably deal with how he would die. And why do I say even more remarkably? Well, this is, comes from a thousand years before Jesus was alive. It comes from Psalm t- chapter 22 where David writes about Jesus being crucified. A pack of villains encircle me and speaking in a mess- messianic way. He says, they pierced my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare at me and gloat. They divide my clothing among them. Cast lots for my garment. It reads almost identically to Matthew chapter 27. It's a thousand years before. And what's even more remarkable is he speaks of crucifixion. My arms are pierced, my feet are pierced. You know, this crucifixion, this is probably 300 years before anybody ever heard of crucifixion at the time, as the Romans did it. And so the predictions that are contained inside the Old Testament are remarkable one after another. And historically, the Bible has proven true over and over and over again. And maybe you've read the words of Isaiah, who wrote 700 years uh, before the life of Jesus. And it says in Isaiah 53, speaking of Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That entire passage points to Jesus. Hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. And someone tried to calculate the odds uh, to try to just be able to complete eight of the 360 messianic prophecies. And what they found, this math guy, I can't even remember his name. In order for us to complete, for somebody to complete eight of them, would be the equivalent of having the chances of one in ten to the 17th power. Like one in 100 quadrillion. Just for eight. Never mind 360. And he concludes, it's 
an undeniable fact of the remarkable history and prophetic conclusions or the prophetic completions of Jesus Christ. And not only that, you can never even look outside the Bible and see how things that were predicted in the Bible were even confirmed. It's, it's kind of, this one's pretty super nerdy, but let me give it you because I really like it. You've heard the story of Alexander the Great. And, and this is crazy because Alexander the Great was this great conqueror. By the age of 30, the dude has basically taken over the world. He literally conquered the no, known world and it went you know, very far east, very far west. But do you know what's in the middle of very far east and very far west? Jerusalem. And everywhere that Alexander went, he would make people pay taxes. And a lot of times he would destroy the villages and the cities and everything else. And you know what happened um, way back in 332 B.C.? No, of course not, because I'm going to tell you. Alexander the Great shows up in Jerusalem. And the high priest of the city of Jerusalem went out to Alexander and he shows him Daniel chapter 8. And basically the high priest, and this is a bit of my paraphrase, says, hey, look, at we knew you were coming. Daniel 8 speaks how a Greek conqueror would come into the land and take over, and he allows Alexander to read it. And Alexander says, all righty then, have a good day, we're good here, and leaves. And he allowed the city to stay intact. Jewish historian Josephus talks about this in his writings. It's not just something that's been made up. It's not just something that's... Uh, that's not anchored in history. There's more evidence for the life of Jesus outside the Bible than there is for the emperor that was around at the same time he was. There are 42 references outside of the Bible of Jesus, many by non-Christians. There are 10 references that support the emperor Tiberius. Think about that one. This isn't some, oh, we made it up. Oh, it's not anchored in history. Think about it. It's an undeniable, unmistakable reality of God's intervention in the world and that the Bible has been proven historically accurate over and over and over again. Fifth, Jesus believed the Bible. You turn to Luke 24, part of the scripture where it's the resurrection Sunday and he's risen from the dead. You read verses 1 to 12, what's happening, right? It's great. It describes the women at the tomb. They saw that the tomb was empty. They ran back. They told the disciples. The disciples didn't believe them. They said, what you're saying sounds like nonsense to us. We don't believe it. Who cares? And then in verse 13, it says the same day, two of them were going to this village called Emmaus. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem, roughly, and they're walking along, talking to each other, discussing the events of what has taken place, what the Bible says that all these things have happened. Verse 15 says that as they talked and discussed these things with each other, something amazing happens. Jesus himself came up and walked alongside them, but they were kept from recognizing him. How that happened beats me. I have no clue, but I know it happened. And Jesus did not just, you know, allow him to know that was him for a moment. No, 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 no. No, he, he just looked like another traveler. And so he comes along and he begins walking with them and he asks them, hey guys, what are you talking about? Because that's what Jesus does. And then in verses 20 to 24, these guys begin to explain everything to him. And they're like, dude, are you serious? Like, are you new to this planet? Are you new to Jerusalem? Like, everybody knows what just happened. And they start explaining to him what just happened and to him. <laughs> just think about that. And we thought he was going to, you know, here's a guy, you know, let me, let, let us, let's, tell you about this guy Jesus and Jesus of course is probably holding back his laughter and they explained to him how you know we thought this Jesus was the Messiah 
You know, he was a prophet. He was mighty in work and in deed. And man, we put our faith in this guy and we put our hope in him. And we thought he was going to restore Israel. And he didn't turn out the way that we had hoped. And they killed him and he's dead. In verse 25, Jesus opens his mouth and he says, How foolish you are to, and how slow of heart to believe. To believe what? Well, watch what it says. It says, To believe that all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And here's the key in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And this is important. Of all the things that Jesus could have said to these disciples in this moment of despair and grief and hopelessness, he could have said, Ah, oh, perk up, boys. It'll be a better tomorrow, tomorrow. The sun will shine again. There'll be no more snow. Like, you know, he could have said anything. And out of all these things, he could have said to them in this moment, but what does he do? He points them where? He points them to the scriptures. Why? Because he himself believed the scriptures were true. And he's saying to them the same thing that he says to you and me today, that if you want truth, look into the scriptures. That's where you're going to find it. Jesus quoted the scriptures again and again in his ministry when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. What was the very first thing he did? He quoted the scripture because the scripture is truth. It is powerful, it is living, it is active. And every time that Jesus did this, he was affirming the authenticity of the scriptures. And if we believe in Jesus, we better believe in everything in this book. Because he did as well. And finally, there's our personal testimony. Those of us who've put our faith in Jesus and we've begun to live by God's word, we're We've experienced the transformation that comes by living according to what God's word says. Many of you in this room are watching on TV. You've experienced what it says. It's here to give you life. It's here to lead you. It's here to guide you. It's here to give you freedom. In other words, we've experienced the life and personally experienced the life of what it looks like to experience healing and freedom from what? From past hurts, from family divorce, from all the things in our past, from pornography, from addiction, from freedom, from anger, from bitterness, and so much more. And personally for me to experience freedom and an increasingly sense of peace in the midst of this world today that feeds my anxiety. But I realize that he fills that hole. All over this room right now, there are men and women who have experienced the transforming truths that are contained in the scriptures. You've experienced it in your own life. People don't come to this church because we give opinions. We come because we understand that the Bible touches every area of life. You want to know about your marriage? It addresses that. You want to know about a work ethic, it addresses that. You want to know about motive? It touches that. Do you want to know how to get the most out of our life? It touches that. Do you want to know how to enjoy life more? It touches that. How to have joy, how to have peace, it touches that. It touches attitudes, it touches reactions, it touches responses of how we are to treat people in need. 
how we are to be treated by people, how to cultivate virtue in our life, every aspect. And, and, and you can live life with true wisdom as well, skilled in the matter of daily living. And it comes how? Not just by showing up on Sunday, but by knowing Scripture, reading Scripture, digesting, meditating on it, and knowing the Christ who is the theme of Scripture. That's awesome. And when the world is turned upside down, we still have hope. And here's what I know. Maybe you're sitting here or you're watching, you're going, I, I don't know. I don't know that the Bible is true. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to speak with you because usually most of the time after a presentation like this, anything you throw up becomes a smokescreen. Let's be honest. You're afraid that it may require you to change. That's why we don't want to trust the Bible. That's why there's this thing called deconstruction in our society. Maybe that's where you find yourself. And I have no problem. I have no problem with us deconstructing our faith, but I equate it to building Legos. You take everything apart. You ask questions. You do what you need to do, but you put it back together again based on the scriptures. Am I old school? Without a doubt. I proudly am a historical, traditional, orthodox Christian in my belief system. Why? Because the Bible says, and when I find places that cause me to shudder, that cause me to question, where do I go for my answers? Is this what it's really saying? Is this what it's really saying? If you've been hiding under this cloud of, do I really trust the Bible? Can I really believe it? You know, uh, I'm just going to keep living for myself. Let me just say that the scripture is God screaming at you. Can I say that? The scripture is God screaming about you. In other words, this is your chance. He is not angry with you. He is crazy about you. And he wants to make sure that you know it. He wants you to know it so badly that he sent his son to die in your place. He wants you to know his love for you so badly that he wrote it so that you would never have to wonder. And he's anchored in history. This is your chance. He's not here to rip you off. He's here to lead you to life. And I think that many people have been sold the lie if they think that the God of the universe is out there being like, I don't want anybody to have fun. He's the God who made you, who knows you intimately, who loves you, who died for you. He wants to allow anyone who will accept his son and his death and his resurrection in your place to experience that new life.
He wants to guide you through his word, through his people, through his spirit. And the purpose of the Bible is to reveal Christ so that you can come into your life and make the Bible your own so that you can live it and prosper the way that God intended you to prosper. Okay, I'm done. I'm exhausted. (laughs) I'm throwing a curveball at you. I know you hate me for that. (laughs) The goodness of God. Before we leave, maybe you've been coming and, and in spite of everything that's been going on, you want prayer. We make prayer available at our crosses during the gatherings. As things change with masks and passports and non-passports and whatever, I just want you to know, as we've always been doing, we will always follow what the government has said because we don't see an issue with it. If you do, that's your business. Great, don't fight me because you'll lose. I also understand we've bent over backwards for those who have chosen not to get vaccinated and we've held gatherings. Of course, I've been getting stuff where people think that we've only had closed gatherings. We haven't. We've done what we can for everybody because I'm called to pastor both people. And so that's what we do here at Seoul. We pastor everyone. So things are going to change. That also means that some people are going to be uptight now and, and rightfully so. I don't really care, but I'm just speaking honestly and everybody understands. And so when the requirements begin to be lifted, that's fine, but there are going to still be people who feel comfortable wearing a mask. I want people to know that this is a mask-friendly church. And I would expect nothing else from a community of love who loves all people. And if somebody comes in, the last thing I want to hear is somebody ask me, why am I wearing a mask? It's their business, not yours. And if you feel comfortable as the restrictions loosen up, but you still want to wear a mask and we still practice social distancing, awesome. Just come. Just come. So I hope I'm really crystal clear. It's a place for all people. Leave your politics outside. Okay? So before we leave, we're going to have prayer at the crosses this morning. Sharon, if you could meet me over there. And if I can have a couple of steering committee, Jordan, you're going to be at this side. If I can have a couple of steering committee members who are present today to help Sharon and I on either side, and we'll pray for you guys. For those, we know that there are people who do want prayer today. And so maybe you want to respond to this message. Maybe you're concerned about world events right now, and you're anxious. Maybe you're in need of encouragement. Don't leave without us praying with each other, please. And maybe while we're singing, that you take some time and pray for peace in Europe, and you pray for Ukraine, and you pray for wisdom for the leadership of this church that is going to be handling tens of thousands of dollars, and we have to get it to the people who need it the most. Because now, my problems in Canada don't look so large. Stand with us.
team's going to lead us in the goodness of God. If you'd like prayer with Jordan over there with some of the steering committee members and myself, and even our prayer team, you guys, please, if you, we have people who pray, and I'll be on the left. Thank you. And then I'll come back and dis, disperse us. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. And all my days I've been held in your hands From the moment that I wake up Until I lay my head I will sing of the goodness of God All my life you have been faithful So, so. 
nice to actually pray with people. So before we go, um, we're going to do our blessing. So in ancient times, someone who blessed, raised his hand. Oh, oh, here he comes. Sorry. I was ready for it. To kick people out. <laughs> I want to pray over them. Don't you, don't you dare apologize. I love this girl. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the amazing gift of your scripture. Father, I confess for all the times that I have not seen it as an amazing gift and I've taken advantage of it. Or maybe I haven't taken advantage of it. How many millions of billions of people throughout the ages would have given anything to have a Bible? And yet my home, my desk, my shelves are full and sometimes not even open. Father, would you make us people who live by your word because we have encountered your son. Who all of the scripture and all of your word points to. And God, I pray for those in range of my voice who have never had a moment where they've trusted Christ. They've never had a moment where they came to accept Jesus as their savior. That you would stretch out your hand right now. That you would move them past the excuses, move them past all the different reasons that they tell themselves about why they can't believe that it's true and that you would at least begin to seek the answers because that they would begin to seek the answers because there is a God who wants to know them and whether or not they realize it they want to know as well so father thank you thank you that you've revealed yourself that you would lead us into this life if we let you god i speak on behalf of our church we love you and amen. So now say it. Ancient times, the one who, oh, in ancient times, the one who blessed, extend his hands, and the one receiving the blessing did likewise. Soul Sanctuary, go now, relying on the power of God. Guard the good treasure. God has entrusted you to hold firm to the teachings of the apostles. Remember one another in your prayers and continue to offer yourself for the gospel, whatever that may look like. And may God give you grace and may God give you mercy and may God give you peace and may God give you hope. May Jesus lead you into life and faith and may the Holy Spirit live within you and rekindle good gifts within you. So now go, go in peace and love and serve the Lord and live the church and we'll see you next week and maybe bring a friend. Amen. Sing us out.